Welcome to Stories of Iceland. The country seems to have handled the virus crisis quite well. I would say that things are getting back to normal, but that would be an exaggeration. Though we seem to have gone through the worst of the coronavirus, the fallout will last for years. Iceland has, in recent years, relied too much on the tourism industry, which has been obliterated in the last couple of months, and it is unlikely that it will see any kind of real recovery in the near future. For me personally, this has been a trying time. I tend to react badly to situations which are out of my control. My anxiety gets worse and I have trouble sleeping. On the business side of things, there has been little interest in using my podcast studio since the virus erupted, while I still have to pay rent and for utilities. I'm worried about the future, and I have to make sure that my anxiety doesn't get the better of me like it did after September 11, 2001, and the financial crash of 2008. I would like to make both a general and a personal appeal. If you enjoy podcasts or videos produced by regular people who rely on direct support from the public, please consider donating, at least if you have the means to do so. I try to do so myself, and I would be very grateful to see more support for me on Patreon. I know that more people have been discovering the podcast since the crisis erupted, but the Patreon numbers haven't gone up by the same margin. I don't blame anybody for not supporting the show, but it would really help me see those numbers go up. It would also be a great way to tell me to focus my energy on the podcast. I will make at least one episode per month, but I would like to do more than that. So please support me on Patreon, that is patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. I'd like to thank all my supporters, especially Troy Williams, Kristen Rose, Robin Williams, and Catherine Matthews, friends of the podcast. Join them at patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. There is extra material there. But this is Stories of Iceland, and this is episode 31, Sagas and Ettas. Iceland is in the North Atlantic. Its capital city is Reykjavik. When everyone will have forgotten Björk, Sigurós, monsters of men, the beautiful women and the strongest men, there'll be one thing that Iceland will be known for. The literature of the 13th and 14th centuries. These are the sagas and the epic poetry. But what are these sagas and eddas? I tend to reference them without explaining too much, since I knew I would be doing this episode sooner or later. The sagas are a bit easier to explain, but we should really start with the Eddas, since they represent an earlier tradition. There are two books we call Eddas. There is the Snorra Edda of Snorri Sturluson, 
often called the prose Edda. And the other one, which we used to call the Edda of Sæmundur the Learned, the same Sæmundur we talked about in a recent episode, but it is now better known as the Poetic Edda. The name itself, Edda, is shrouded in mystery. A popular explanation makes a connection to the farm of Otti, a seat of knowledge in early Iceland, as mentioned in my episode of Simon Dura the Learned, but this connection seems unlikely. The best clue seems to be an Eddic poem called The Lay of Ríugur, where the word Edda is used for a great-grandmother. In that sense, giving a book the name Edda likely refers to the knowledge of our ancestors. The manuscripts of the Eddas do not have the bibliographic information we are used to in printed books, so the name Edda is never stated on a title page. Instead, there is a note on the first page of the oldest version of the Snorra Edda, which reads, This book is called Edda. It was compiled by Snorri Sturluson. So, we don't even know whether the original compiler gave his work this name, and we can't really know for sure if that compiler was Snorri Sturluson. If it was Snorri, it doesn't mean that he wrote it himself. He might just have been the rich guy who commissioned the work. Even so, I usually refer to it as Snorra Etta. It is really a textbook for aspiring poets, but it quotes many poems, many of which are otherwise completely lost, which makes it a great source of information. As a textbook, it is also a key for anyone trying to understand other surviving poems. Without it, we might never understand Kennings, the poetic way of using figurative language. If you have studied literature, you might know the word kenning. It is one of the Icelandic words that have passed into English. The poetic Edda was given the name Simon Daretta when it was already a few centuries old. There is no evidence to link it to Simon the Learned, but an Icelandic bishop thought that Simon was such a great scholar that he was the most likely author. I don't think any serious modern scholars would associate it with Simon today. The Poetic Edda is a collection of poems. These are called Eddic poems. They fall into two main categories. There are mythic poems about the gods and the heroic poems of men. An example of a mythic poem is the Lay of Thrym, which tells us the story about how Thor, the god of thunder, lost his hammer Mjölnir and retrieved it back from his Jötun foes. An example of a heroic poem is the Lay of Fopnir that tells us how Sigurdur killed the dragon Fopnir. Where did the Eddic poems come from? We will never know. There were people called skalds, a term which today means a poet but likely meant something more akin to a bard when these poems were composed. The poems were the product of the pre-literate society of Scandinavia. Many, or most, composed outside of Iceland. A society that doesn't have writing is very likely to use a rhythmic structure, a poetic meter, to remember and recite the stories which are important to them. We know that the skalds performed poems, but we don't know how. 
Not exactly. If we look to other societies, it would seem obvious that the scouts were singers. But were they just singers or did they have instruments to accompany themselves with? There were instruments in Scandinavia, in what we often dub the Viking times, but there is little evidence to link them to the Eddic poems. There is one story about a guest which seems to be as clear an indication as we can get. But before I explain about that, I need to talk about the sagas for a bit. The word saga in Icelandic has a dual meaning. It is both a story and history. Etymologically speaking, it is closely related to the word seja, which means tell or say. This is really appropriate since sometimes the line between written and spoken language is a bit blurred. What I mean by this is that we tend to think of the Eddic poems as lines of letters in a manuscript, but they were likely composed by people who had never imagined the words being fixed in such a way. They would not have imagined the words being made up of letters. They might not even have thought of words in the same way we do. When we write, we have to decide which units of sound should be separated from each other to form words. Icelandic has many more compound words than English. In fact, we can make endless compound words. It can be a kind of a sport to make a really long one. When I am editing my recordings of this podcast, there is usually no clear space between my words. There is often a space between sentences, but the words don't look like units on the computer screen. Maybe this is too much of a digression, but what I want to emphasize is the difference between what is spoken and what is written. While the big stories of the societies were likely sung by scouts, there must have been other stories which were passed down by storytellers. Were these called sagas? My answer is yes. Might the Eddic poems have been oral sagas before a scout came along? I think that is very likely. Let's imagine you are an Icelander in the early 12th century. When you learned to read, it was in Latin. People were trying to form a written version of their native language. They wrote their genealogies, their laws, and their sagas. Though they were not using their mouth to speak of these events, real or imagined, they still used the same word. These sagas also included a lot of poetry, which was, presumably, oral in the origin. The sagas written in the next three centuries or so have been divided into categories, though some of them might into more than one or none at all. I should also note that a few of the sagas might in fact have been written in Norway, though they only survived in Iceland. The most famous sagas are often referred to as the Icelandic sagas. They are also known as the family sagas. These are the stories of the early Icelanders, the settlers, their families, their power struggles. These are the sagas of Njáll of Grettir of Gísli and of Troublemaker Valley. They are numerous, and some are more popular than others. One saga, or a collection of saga of Icelanders, falls into its own category, that is, the saga of the Sturlungar. 
mentioned in episode 5 here, Smith of Heavens. These were written about events that had happened in living memory, so they are called the contemporary sagas. A related type of saga are the sagas of bishops and holy men. They were often written as hagiographies, in the hopes of getting a bishop declared a saint. They also mark the transition to when the authority of the church in Iceland became more important than the power of chieftains. Icelanders also wrote down legends that have been passed down to them about their ancestors in Scandinavia. These are the legendary sagas of Sigurd, of Ragnar Furipants, and so forth. They often include dragons, ghosts, and monsters. The legendary sagas often dealt with the deeds of the kings of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. At some point, these sagas become more history than legend, though the line is often blurred. In fact, Icelanders were commissioned to write about the more contemporary kings. These are the sagas of the kings. There are also sagas which were translated or adapted from, mostly, French source materials. We call them Sivalric sagas, and they often deal with the deeds of knights and nobles in Europe. Some of them also deal with the supernatural and include fantastic elements. They are quite interesting as a glimpse into how Icelanders viewed the outside world. They might have been the most popular sagas of their time, but many of them seem quite dull to modern readers. A final type of saga, which I need to mention, is not a genre in itself. In Icelandic they are called Þáttur. This is not an easy word to translate. A thoughter is mostly a shorter saga or a chapter of a longer saga. Some of these seem to have been taken from sagas that we don't have today. Either the manuscripts were lost or they were simply never written down. One of the most interesting of this type is Nornagestsdóttir. The name Nornagestur could be directly translated as Witsgest. It is set in the reign of King Olavr Tryggvason of Norway, who in Iceland is mostly known for using the threat of violence to force Christianity upon the people here. The story of Nornagestur is often included in the larger saga of King Olavr. In many ways this story is set up as a transition between the Old Norse religion and Christianity. If I were to categorize it like we do with the sagas, we would really have to use three categories. It is a story of a king, who some people wanted to be declared a saint, but it also includes many legendary aspects. Nornagestatur is set in the court of King Olavr, who reigned for about five years before he died, likely in the year 999. Olaver hosts a mysterious guest from Denmark who is simply called Guest. King Olaver asks Guest if he has been baptized, to which he replies that he has taken a Christian blessing, but not baptism. Olaver is surprised that a Danish king allows an unbaptized man to leave his kingdom. Guest reveals that he left Denmark long before it became Christian, since it had been almost half a century since Haraldr Bluetooth the wireless headphone guy, had declared that all Danes should be Christian. 
This implied that Guest might be much older than he seemed. The visitor spent quite some time in the court of King Olaver. He told stories and recited poems of events long since past, as if he himself had been present. He also revealed that he had been called Nornagestur, or Witch Guest. When asked about the name, he explained that when he was born, three Norns, or witches, who may have been the Norns, who controlled the destinies of men, visited him. Like the fairy godmothers of folk tales, they each gave him a gift. Two of them gave him good fortune, while the third said he would not live longer than the candle which burned by his bed. One of the others grabbed the candle, which had almost burned out, and blew out the flame. She gave the candle to his mother and told her to keep and not light it until the last day of his life. Later his mother gave him the candle. After hearing this tale, the king asks Guest why he had come to his court. The guest replied that he had heard such great things about the king that he had had to come. The king asked if Guest would like to be baptized. Guest replied that he would do so by the king's counsel and was then baptized into the Christian faith. Guest became a part of the king's court, was popular and kept his faith well. Later the king asked Guest how much longer he wanted to live. Guest replied that, God willing, it wouldn't be much longer. Guest got out his candle and the king had it lighted. The king then asked Guest how old he was. Guest replied that he had three hundred winters on him. Guest then lay down, asked for a blessing, which was granted, and died at the same time as his candle. This is a great story, but obviously more akin to folklore than history. There is a bit in it that I didn't mention, though I have alluded to it earlier. When Guest is performing his poems, it is said that he beat his harp. I should note that the word harp here does not mean harp in the modern sense, but rather a vague category of stringed instruments. This, and the fact that the harp is mentioned quite a few times in the story, seems a clear indication that the Eddic poems were in fact accompanied by the playing of an instrument. But is this proof? Not really. The story was not written down during the time of King Oliver, but it means that the person who wrote this tale thought that the Eddie poems were accompanied by instruments. We have other vague references, but this is the clearest. It might not be definite, but I tend to believe it. I hope you have a clearer idea about what the Edison sagas are. I could have gone into much more detail, but this is a simple introduction that I will refer to back in later episodes. Before I wrap up, I need to make a book recommendation for those of you who might want to delve into how oral poems might have been performed, composed, and passed on. I know of no better introduction than the book The Singer of Tales by Albert Lord. This classic work deals with research into the ballad singers of the Baltics and lays out a theory developed by its author and his mentor, Milman Perry. In many ways, the book was written to explain how the epics attributed to Homer might have been composed and transmitted before being fixed into written form. 
to imagine these works not as literature but as a product of oral tradition was very controversial in its day. But the ideas in this book have spread since it was published in 1960. Well, that is it for today. Thanks to Christopher Bath, Austin Yule, Emily Harper, Evan Williams, Jon Helgeson, and all my other supporters. And as always, special thanks to Troy Williams, Kristen Rose, Robin Williams, and Catherine Matthews, friends of the podcast. I am Oleg Nestesolerson, and this has been Stories of Iceland, episode 31, Sagas and Atas. Thank you.